What I should say is I'm just preparing. Thank you again for uh, helping us uh, not, not just even move into our new home in Kashmir, but just the whole transition from Florida to Alabama, Florida to Alabama, Washington. So you guys have, uh, as, as Jordan said this morning, that we are a family. Uh, we, have, we have felt that you have embraced our family as your family. So thank you for that. Um, that has been much appreciated and, and needed, and we, we are grateful for that help. Philippi. Walk faithfully according to his purpose. Walk faithfully according to his purpose. Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father God, uh, you already know that we're not jumping into the whole passage, but only the first two verses, God. So Lord, I I, I pray, pray for clarity through your spirit, Lord, through your word, God, that, that no matter where we land in, uh, on the side of human responsibility and your sovereignty, that the one place we all land and all can unite on is the Lord is our salvation, and it is nothing that we have contributed to. You are our salvation. As the Father You have chosen to adopt sinners, Lord, and to redeem them and and, and cleanse our sins by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, and through your Holy Spirit, who too is God, you give us life, and you transform us, and you give us a guarantee that we belong to you because we are in Christ alone. God, may we unite on that truth today. From the preaching of your word. We ask this for your glory. Amen. My wife wasn't here last week, so her critique from listening to the sermon is, you sound like you were really yelling. So I'm going to, if I'm yelling in my prayer, I probably need to bring it down a notch and, and uh, 
And sometimes you know, the passion of, of, of God's word and what he's done, it just, it just grips you. And, and, I, and I, I go from a two to like a 47. So uh, anyway, uh, if, if you heard in the prayer, uh, is we're only going to be going through verses 12 through 13, uh, and, and we'll do 14 through 18 next week. Well, I got to a certain point in the sermon where... I, had, I was just beginning point three, which begins verse 14, and I knew that if I continue, we're going to be here for like two hours. So, uh, and, and really, verses 12 and 13 uh, together, I, I thought that they, they really do form uh, one good and, and, and message, uh, one, one message by itself, so... Um, that's what we'll be focusing on today, verses 12 and 13. If you're familiar with J.I. Packard, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, Packard says, Scripture teaches, so the Bible teaches that as king, God, as king, orders and controls all things, including human actions among them in accordance with his own eternal purpose. And then he lists out a bunch of scriptures. If you want those scripture references, see me after. And, Packer says, scripture also teaches, as judge, being God, he holds every man responsible for the choices he makes and the courses of action he pursues. And then gives a list of scriptures to that. Furthermore, Packer states... God's sovereignty, control and ordering of all things, and man's responsibility are taught to us side by side in the same Bible. Sometimes, indeed, in the same text, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught to us side by side in the same Bible, sometimes, indeed, in the same text confusing doctrines, and I, and I find that comment very helpful, and, and I hope you find that last comment very helpful, uh, because that's what we see in today's passage in verses 12 and 13, that, that both these realities of God's sovereignty and our responsibility are just interwoven right into this passage. Now, I want, there, there, there's a few pitfalls, there's many pitfalls. Just listing two pitfalls we, we should be aware of uh, as we explore these doctrines. Because as we attempt to walk this narrow line between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, it, it is very easy to fall off either side, become too extreme on either side. Now, the first pitfall is if our understanding leads us to think that human actions are independent or capable of frustrating the will of God or the work of God, the, we would say that God is not sovereign, that he's not in control. But Scripture teaches, not only is God sovereign over the order of the universe, he is also sovereign over our salvation, our sanctification, and even our glorification. So the, the, the pitfall is if we become convinced that our faith 
and our perseverance in our faith begins and depends on our effort and not the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we start to believe that that our salvation is dependent on our own effort to maintain God's favor rather than relying solely on the work of Jesus Christ that is sufficient to satisfy him. We don't earn our salvation and we can't lose our salvation. Why? Because our salvation is a work of God alone. The Father chooses, the Son redeems, the Spirit gives life and circumcises the heart praise him on the flip side God's sovereignty does not teach determinism which means uh, determinism that all of our actions are preset against our own preferences John Bradford skillfully wrote possibly preached God's decree and providence determine what will come to pass but This necessity does not force men to make particular choices contrary to their own preferences any more than God is forced to be good. Therefore, if our understanding leads us to believe that that we don't make actual choices, then we are in danger of, of of not accepting responsibility for our actions. And, and could fall into a pit that, that actually blames God when we sin. We make choices. Joseph's brothers made a choice to sell him. Pharaoh made choices not to release the Hebrews. Judas made a choice to betray Jesus. The Pharisees and rulers chose to crucify Jesus. And yet at the same time, the scriptures also tell us that all of this was the will of God for his purposes. It's a long introduction. And it's a difficult subject. Point one. Verse 12. Work out, not work for. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We begin another sermon. Paul begins another verse here in verse 12 with, therefore. So if you remember from last week, when we get to therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is the therefore, therefore? And the answer is that the therefore in in verse 12, it's it's to connect us back to what Paul just previously said in verses 5 through 11. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or something to be grasped. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. 
Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. With, with, with verses 5 through 11 in the background, Paul now says to the Philippians, listen, whether in my presence or, or, or my absence, obey God, right? You know this, obey God as you always had. That's what he says. Therefore, loved ones, as you've always obeyed, obey him. No matter if I'm there or not there, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, in other words, what Paul seems to be saying to the Philippians here is, look, I may not always be around to write these divinely inspired letters, right? In fact, if we look ahead to verses 17 and 18, Paul says, I may soon be poured out as a sacrificial drink offering for your faith, which means he's probably about to lose his life or face death for the cause of Christ. But Paul said, look, even, even if so, he says to the Philippians, even if so, you don't need me to be there in person to tell you to obey Christ. You already know this. You already know who he is, and therefore, because he is Lord, you should follow him and obey him. And, and you can do this among yourselves. Therefore, if I'm there or not there, work out your own salvation. Work out, not work for. And in, in that, whether I'm there or absent, seems to be connected to his earlier comments back in chapter 1. In verse 27, Paul says, As citizens of heaven, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So, so two times now, Paul has said, look, whether I'm there or not, do this. As citizens of heaven, right, live life's worthy of the gospel. Whether in my presence or in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. What does that mean? What does it mean to work out your salvation? The one thing I've learned and, and I agree with is, is that sometimes uh, it's helpful to teach from the negative, which instead of explaining what it means, you explain first what it doesn't mean. And, and so let, let's start there. What it doesn't mean. Work out your own salvation. What it doesn't mean is work for your salvation. Do not live your life hoping God will accept you on the basis of your effort. <laughs> the cross of Jesus Christ says that's not going to happen, right? Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law. Christ died for nothing. In other words, if, if your or our best attempts to keep the law, to obey God, to please God, had the ability to be our entry into heaven, 
And Galatians 22.21 says, if that's true, then the death of Jesus Christ is meaningless. We're not under the wrath of God because of our effort to obey him. There's not this expectation of judgment from God because we've seek to please him and obey. We're under his wrath because of our works of disobedience, because we've sinned against him. And love us, there's no amount of, 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 of effort or good deeds we can do to remove that debt or to cancel that debt that we owe. It's, it's precisely why it's vital for every single one of us to remove, if we have it at all, to remove any hope of salvation by what we do and instead rest our confidence and solely on the basis of alone on what Christ has done. God doesn't accept us by what we do. He accepts us because what Christ did for us. Isn't that good news? Right? That's, I mean, it's, the, the, we, we aren't faced. It, it, well, people may try to earn their way into heaven, but at least what the word of God says that we believe is inspired by God through the pouring out of his spirit, through his prophets and apostles, that the word of God says we aren't faced with the impossible task of trying to earn our salvation. Why? Because Christ achieved it for us. I mean, if you don't believe that yet, how heavy has your burden become? I mean, Jesus says, come, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Do you think the burden Jesus was speaking about to bring to him was, was, was an electric bill or, or, or just a break from your unruly children for a couple hours? Was he referring to some dead-end job or, or a dysfunctional family? Don't, don't get me wrong. He does give us rest from all of those things. But what the Bible teaches, the true rest that we need and what Jesus is talking about is we need relief from the guilt that comes from sinning against a pure and holy God. We need relief from the guilt that that we're constantly living in because of the sin that that eats us up inside so badly that, that we lose sleep at night then not only have we lost sleep at night, we find ourselves thinking that, that an early grave is, is, now more devi- is now more desirable than facing the consequences of our actions. That's the burden we bring, cornerstone. The love of God through the death of Jesus Christ says, come to me with your sins and your guilt and lay it at the foot of the cross. And he will give you rest. You're yelling. It's important. (laughs) 
You see, I, I mean, personally, where you land on human responsibility or God's sovereignty, you have to land with you don't earn your salvation and Christ has achieved it for us. Otherwise, you're not saved. But once we do, once, once we, that burden, right? And think about Pilgrim's Progress. He's just carrying this, this huge back, this, this huge pack on his back, this burden. Once we bring that burden to Christ and lay it at the foot of his cross and, and the guilt is, is released because we're forgiven. And we, 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 we have confidence that we don't have to work for our salvation because we, we finally believe that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the confidence we need to have going into eternity. Not the hope God will accept us for who we are or what we've done, but the confidence that he accepted the blood payment of Jesus Christ on the cross. I mean, our salvation came at a high cost. That was the cost of Christ for us. For us, salvation is free. Our sins are forgiven by grace. Now think of when when the snow melts and I go to the golf course or the golf course opens and, and the manager at the pro shop says, if he says to me, your round is free today because a man already came in and paid the cost for you, how much do I owe? Nothing. Why not? It's already been paid. My debt's been paid in full. Loved one, grace, the grace of God is free. Now at the same time, we may not owe anything toward our salvation, but our lives belong to Jesus. Paul tells, us, tells that to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. He asked them, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. <laughs> you were bought at a price. Therefore, hey, salvation was free. Therefore, because you've been purchased by Christ, honor God with your bodies. And so Paul can say with full assurance to, to the Philippians or to anyone, that calling Christians to a path of obedience is not a doctrine of salvation by works. Rather, our obedience is the fruit that God produces in those that he saves. In other words, God, God doesn't just save us and leave us as, as rebellious as we were prior to conversion. Instead, God, God looks upon us in our, in, our, in our sinful estate and says, I'm going to transform you into something completely new. By his spirit, Jesus is the image that he transforms us into. That new thing is the image of Jesus. And by his spirit, by the work of his spirit, our faith is turned into action. And that is work that he produces in us 
and through us. Don't work for our salvation, but we are responsible to faithfully live out our salvation. And that's, and Paul says, point, well, point two, fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and a million other things. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a peculiar phrase, fear and trembling. And Paul uses in regard to our effort. What does the Christian have to ultimately fear? Uh, Romans 8 says nothing, right? Not, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's what Romans 8 says, nothing. So what in the world can Paul be referring to when he says, hey, work this out with fear and trembling, You guys knew fear and trembling was in Philippians before we decided to preach you this book, right? That's, I, I can only think of one thing that any Christian should fear. Just one. It's just one. That's the reality of what Paul just told us in five verses 5 through 11. Mainly that this Jesus who humbled himself and died for our sins and rose from the dead and ascended to the throne is Lord. He's the same Lord who cast fire upon Aaron's sons for offering something he did not command. He is the same Lord who filled Israel's camp with vipers when they just grumbled against him. He's the same Lord who destroyed the firstborn of all the Egyptians during the Passover. He's the same Lord who sent floods upon the earth to remove the wickedness of all humanity because their hearts were evil. He's the same Lord who, who dwelt in the temple during Isaiah's vision. In, in Isaiah 6, And Isaiah stands there and, and he sees the seraphim covering their eyes with their wings, because the glory of him was too much to behold. He is the one in Revelation that the Apostle John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. With that in mind of who Jesus is, I think Paul is saying to the Philippians, look guys, Love Christ. Sing joyfully. Sing joyfully to Christ. Give to Christ. Give your time, money, effort, love, like family words. Give, just give. 
increase your affection for Christ. He is humble. He is sweet. He, he, he loves us. But by no means forget that the one we have sworn our allegiance to is the Lord. When I was in the Marine Corps, I got into a little trouble one time. And to be completely honest, I got into a lot of trouble a lot of times. But this one specific time that I got in trouble, I had to go in front of the commanding officer to receive my punishment. And I thought I was hot stuff back then. But when I stood in front of the colonel and I awaited his judgment and his punishment or to, to receive my punishment, I, I, can, I can truly testify that my knees have never shaken uh, in terror or buckled so hard as they did in that moment. Even one of my friends who, who stood there said that it was a terrifying moment and even his knees were shaking. Loved ones, Colonel Roos was just a man. Just a man that had a bit of a higher rank than I did. And imagine for a moment, one day, you and I are going to be brought before the highest rank in all creation. The one who wasn't created. The highest rank on earth under the earth are in heaven. That's happening. And I don't know this for certain. But I speculate maybe one of the reasons Paul says at his return, every knee will bow, is because none of us are going to have the strength to stand in his presence. Therefore, don't work for, but we work out our salvation. We live faithfully to the Lord with fear and trembling, knowing who he is. It's a lot of human responsibility. For his good pleasure, verse 13. For it is God who works in you. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, before anyone gets an idea that we can live out God's commands by our own strength, or knowledge, or whatever else we believe to be required that is needed to carry out the will of God, Paul says, not so fast. Because after he explains our role and our duty to be obedient in verse 12, immediately in verse 13, he says, hey, God is the one who works through you, and even who gives you the desire to be obedient, he works to will, Why? Is, why, why? Why is God the one that, that, that Paul is, is, is emphasizing on here? Well, because God has to be the one to do it, right? <laughs> As fallen humans, sinful humans, we don't possess the natural ability to do it on our own. 
In other words, for, for humans obeying God, that has never come naturally, has it? I mean, if you need an illustration of total depravity, just look at little kids. They don't need to be taught how to sin. It just comes naturally. What they need to be taught is the admonition and the fear of the Lord, because that doesn't. They need to be taught the gospel. So therefore, in order to, to do something that doesn't come naturally for us, something has to take place that's supernatural. And this is what Paul precisely, what he's saying, takes place. God works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says, God works. And we're going to emphasize on God works to will in us. Don't tune out. We only have a little bit of time left, so just, just stay with me. God works to will in us. And, you know, th- quite frankly, what's so bad about that? <laughs> God works his will in us. Why, why, why would Christians get so upset at the idea that God transforms our will for his good intentions and purposes? I mean, it shouldn't come at any surprise, uh, as any surprise to any of us that our will is typically a bad idea. And his is much better. Have you learned that as a Christian yet? He knew better than we did? So why is it so bad? That we wanted to go one way and the Lord said, no, I'm going to transform your heart and you're going to start wanting to go that way. What's so bad about that? We still make a choice to go that way. We're still responsible for that choice. Well, but as finite creatures who don't have infinite knowledge like God, why is it so hard for us to admit that our will, in many cases, should not be done? I mean, think about that logic in regard to uh, our change of heart over sin. At some point, we've all loved to sin, right? That's common to all of us. What happened when we wanted to stop sinning, when we wanted to repent, and we knew we needed help? I mean, if if God provided the strength to resist and the will to repent, the power to be transformed, if God supplied all of that, do we then accuse him of not allowing us to do it by our own strength? Or even our desire? We get upset with God because he transformed our heart to not want to sin and to do something that glorified him? Can you imagine waking up one morning and going to kneel before him in prayer and devotion and saying, God, I know Mrs. Jones really needed a new muffler. And I'm glad you used me to help her finance that but I'm really upset with you because you transform my greediness into charity without my permission. Praise God that we have a God that transforms our heart to godly desires and not sinful desires. 
I mean, if, 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 if we truly have a problem with God giving us godly desires because we didn't initially have them, we, we have to take Romans 12, right? And which says, renew your mind so that you can approve the will of God. Why? Because we don't naturally think that way. But, but if we don't like that our mind and our heart needs to be renewed by the word of God, then we just need to take that and throw it in the trash. Because in order to apply that passage, we have to humbly admit that our desires do not always align with the will of God. And therefore, we need help from the Spirit of God to transform the way we think. It is a supernatural working of God. So verse 13 is saying, may not say supernatural, but a work of God is supernatural to transform a sinner into holy and blameless and follower of Jesus Christ. That is something that only God can do. It's a working of God that changes our desires to conform to his will. And it's not the restriction of free choice. Let me say that again. Him changing our desires to conform to his To become his desires is not a restriction of our free choice. Rather, it is the freedom from the bondage that we were once enslaved to. That's what God does. He frees us from being enslaved to choices that were sinful and not pleasing to him. He frees, he he circumcises our heart. He takes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And, And then we willingly wantingly, lovingly said, Lord, I want to do this now. Thank you for doing this good work in me. It doesn't restrict our choice. It gives us the freedom to make it. Even though I cut this sermon almost in half, I had a really hard time with the conclusion. And I'm just going to transition into it. So uh, that's the end of that point. I learned that at a conference once. You just tell them when you're done with that point and you're moving on when you, you know. Guys spend a lot of money to try to figure out how to transition into the next point. I'm just letting you know I don't have a good one, so we're just starting. Let's just, just, just conclude recalling that life of bondage, that life of enslavement, being chained, Because Ephesians 2 does, does really well to help us recall what that life was like. You know, the life. The one where we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In which we previously walked according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air. The spirit now working in the disobedient. Why are we going to have a problem with God working in the obedient when Paul says, hey, Satan and evil works in the disobedient? We too, here it is, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. And we were, we were the disobedient. We didn't want what God wanted. We lived among them in our fleshly desires. We had desires, but they weren't godly ones. Carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. We too 
previously lived among them and our fleshly desires carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we had a will prior to being converted. And what Paul says that will was, was the sinful will of the flesh. Without God intervening in our life, that's how our will was going to remain. Paul says, look, sin was your desire. Gratifying yourself was your goal. And the result would end in eternal damnation. But in our hopelessness and in our helplessness, verse 4, but God, God made us alive in Christ. Can we charge God then for circumcising the heart of stone that wanted to, to fulfill fleshly, sinful desires and charge him for replacing that heart with a heart of true flesh that wanted to please God and follow Christ as the Lord and turn from sin? Of course not. Because if he didn't, we never would have begun to love him who loved us first. And that reality, I, I pray, because it should lead us, I hope and I pray, that the reality that God saved you, and that only God can save you, but that he will save you, and that he is the one that works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure so that we may walk faithfully according to his purpose. Let us, let us praise him for changing our desires. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, uh, you're able, you're willing. God, I... I pray that if there be anything right now in any of our lives, Lord, that, that we're struggling with, that even though we're a Christian, we, we still feel like we're trapped or, or chained to a sin that we want to stop, but then if we think about it, we don't really want to stop, and we can't do this on our own, God. Lord, I pray that you would draw them by your Spirit to, to confess their sin and, and to, to ask for freedom, Lord. Not just so they can have freedom from the sin, but so that that freedom will lead them to praise you for being the one who wills and works in their life, God, in salvation and in sanctification. God, we ask this to the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.